Hey everybody, welcome to the Decoding Cocktails podcast. I'm your host, Chris LeBeau. The goal of this show is to understand the inner workings and evolution of mixology, hospitality, and community. As I further my own knowledge of the field, I'm inviting you to join me. You'll hear me interview people from around the industry about their work and beliefs. If you like what you hear, the best way to keep up is to subscribe via the podcast app you use. And if you think others will like this, I invite you to share an episode or write a review. Your words help grow our audience. And you can keep up with the latest news via our newsletter, Cocktail Confidential, or see what we're working on via Instagram. And please reach out. I'd enjoy hearing what you liked, learned, and what else you'd like to see me dig into. So let's get into it. Hey everybody, I'm excited that you're here today. And what I want to dive into is we have, by all accounts, been for 25 plus years now in the middle of a cocktail renaissance, and it's arrived in other places sooner uh, than others. And I thought it would be interesting to first talk about why we had a cocktail renaissance and where it began and a couple of key things that have perhaps shaped things. So where the initial driver for this arguably is, goes back to Prohibition. So at that point in time when Prohibition came along, despite the lore of the speakeasy that we have in kind of uh, our culture, uh, while the speakeasies may have been fun, the reality about Prohibition is that the quality of booze went down in our country Uh, A lot of bartenders who knew a lot of the recipes quit the profession, left for Europe, uh, or perhaps did work in a speakeasy with less uh, available ingredients. And so a lot of knowledge and a lot of quality products were lost as things kind of began to kick off. The second thing is that when Prohibition was repealed uh, many years later, what immediately followed, or, or followed not long after, was World War II. And with World War II, there was a lot of rationing that took place. And a number of companies that produced alcohol commercially were then suddenly required to produce it from industrial pers- uh, perspective. So that way that the military and other people could have industrial alcohols that they needed. And so by this time, we're looking at well over 15 years passing where cocktails had kind of begun uh, to be to be forgotten in many ways. And so that loss of talent was then paired with something that we've had a lot of conversations around in the food industry, and I could have mentioned before, but uh, not long after World War II is when all sorts of food innovations took place. And by this, a lot of times I mean we started to ha- see all sorts of meals that could be uh, cooked that were prepackaged that had all sorts of seasonings and preservatives put on them. And the same thing made its way to the cocktail world, uh, where we had sweet and sour mixes that suddenly existed. And so you have this conflux of things of, quote-unquote, progress of uh, more innovative ingredients to make making drinks simpler, a loss of knowledge, a loss of ingredients, which really, by and large, across the country and arguably much of the planet created 
a real lack of quality drinks despite a lot of early cocktail heritage being tied to the U.S. And so it's not to say that you couldn't have for years found a good old-fashioned here, Negroni there, Martini here, Daiquiri over here, but the reality is a lot of what was served was this inferior parody of things. And so there's an interesting conflux of things that perhaps kicked these things off uh, in very disparate ways. And some of this that I'm drawing on, I'm drawing from a book called A Proper Drink by Robert Simonson. And of course, something Robert would say, and all historians would say, and things we're even living right now in our society, is that history is imperfect. Who was written about, who was doing the writing, uh, are often uh, not wholly representative. And so keep in mind that, of course, this is a best account. And Robert is also quick to say that despite some industries, that uh, bartenders in particular uh, were pretty bad at writing things down. Or, uh, if you will follow where I'm headed, uh, a lot of times people don't remember uh, what happened uh, because they were uh, a late night of boozing. But a couple of people are noted uh, to have been kind of big people helping kick things off. And in the early 1980s, a gentleman named Dick Bradsell in London got introduced to a book called The Fine Art of Mixing Drinks by David M. Barry from kind of the, the 40s and 50s. And that began uh, Dick's career in experimenting with higher quality drinks, of returning to some of these citruses and classic drinks that have been forgotten. And so Dick was kind of doing his thing and occasionally acquiring a protege in London um, at a couple of bars. One was called Fred's Club, and later on there was Dick's Bar. Meanwhile, on the other side of the pond, as they say, uh, there was uh, a movement to restore the Rainbow Room, which is uh, at Rockefeller Center in New York City. And uh, a kind of a forward-looking restaurateur at the time uh, ended up hiring a gentleman named Dale DeGroff. And Dale had also kind of bumped back into this idea of using fresh citrus and returning to classics um, in, in, uh, in his bar. And so the Rainbow Room obviously had a lot of cachet, and so people were drawn to it and slowly began to be exposed to both Dick and Dale's work. But for many, many years, we shouldn't kid ourselves. These were kind of guys who made things that intrigued people, but there was no great cataclysmic moment. Meanwhile, and I always find this kind of a a, a smile-worthy thing, something was happening in the U.S., that seemingly is unremarkable, but uh, Simonson talks about in his book, TGI Fridays in the late 70s and early 80s was really positioning itself as a strong uh, late-night bar. And in order to work behind the bar, you had to have memorized somewhere in the neighborhood of, I believe, 400 recipes, and 25 of them you had to be able to make blindfolded. Uh, it's also reputed that they were using all sorts of fresh citruses and, and better syrups in their drinks, etc. Uh, people often say they're not 100% sure how high of quality the drinks were. Maybe they were fabulous. But the reality is that the rigorous bar program that Friday's put in place, and apparently it was pretty darn intense, created an army of people 
who if suddenly they were then exposed to great recipes, had all the technique to know how to make great drinks. So Friday's was turning out all these people that ultimately later on bumped into some of these nicer cocktail bars and knew how to be a good bartender based on their training at Friday's. So there's another couple of other seminal moments. So meanwhile, you have protégés kind of rolling out from under Dick uh, and Dale. A woman named Audrey Saunders is another one of the big uh, early people in the movement. But a couple of years before the hit TV show Sex and the City took off, uh, a gentleman, uh, Toby Caccini, I think is how you say his name, Caccini, sorry Toby, uh, invented a cocktail called the Cosmo. And the Cosmo got picked up by Sex and the City and became their drink. And with Carrie and all of her friends loving this drink, it set off uh, a martini craze. And what was interesting about the Cosmo at the time is the Cosmo is actually kind of very closely related to the margarita more in its build. Uh, But it was a lot of times still at this age served in a martini glass. And what people say was so important about this moment of ordering the Cosmo is that suddenly with people having license to get this Cosmo because it's what Carrie Bradshaw's drinking, they're like, well, what else can you put in here? And so this created kind of, while it got played out in a lot of ways that was not always glamorous, it gave bartenders license to put other drinks in a martini glass and say, oh, you you like that martini drink right there? Try this. And so perhaps the espresso martini, uh, chocolate martinis, etc. Some of them gross concoctions. And sometimes it was a bartender's way to kind of casually slip a drink into play that otherwise was being ignored. Uh, so that is kind of curious thing. I also find it useful to talk about right now, I was looking at a timeline of things. So arguably in the last three or four years, uh, mezcal has kind of really become a pretty big thing more nationally. It, it's had pockets of, of people following it for you know a couple of decades now. But it was in 1995 when Ron Cooper, who is the founder of Del Maguey, which did a big part in helping to popularize mezcal in the U.S., in 1995 is when Cooper founded Del Maguey. And so for a lot of people coming into mezcal right now, It's just valuable to know that Cooper was doing work 20 plus years before many of us had ever even heard of or really dabbled in it at all. So anyways, that's when Ron Cooper kind of began his work. Another thing that's crazy to remember is the era that existed before the internet when when sharing information wasn't just as simple as posting it on social media. And for the cocktail era really having begun to really kick off in a big way, probably arguably in the the early to mid-90s in in these mega cities uh, that that drove things like San Francisco, like New York, and like London. Uh, If you knew something, you know, you could call a friend, maybe it would be written up in some random food publication, but the reality is there weren't these forums. But with the earliest days of the internet, uh, there were two publications that kind of kicked off early. And one of them that was known in particular was called Drink Boy, and it was one of the first real forums where knowledge could be shared and that you didn't have to have a bartender who worked in Seattle where the aviation was created 
uh, suddenly fly to New York in order to tell someone. It's more like you could be posting about it on these forums. And so this just, as people say, exploded the knowledge share across the bar world versus today, a bartender creates a drink at 3 p.m. and it has at least decent traction in various communities, you know, by the next day at the very least. Also, in terms of things that have helped to kind of push the community forward, you know, being uh, a group of people that are sometimes labeled as misfits, although it's certainly a hope of mine and a lot of people in the field. We've seen, you know, chefs a long time ago weren't really a a respected profession, and now we see these uh, noted celebrity chefs. We saw food explode in our culture, wine exploded in our culture, beer exploded in our culture, and cocktails now have been a big thing for a while. But uh, the Cocktail Forum uh, got its first real ever convention called Tales of the Cocktail in New Orleans. And many, many years later, there would be some scandal uh, around um, potentially racially insensitive comments, uh, another lack of inclusion. But that part aside, and I don't mean to sweep that under the rug, it provided one of the first forums for people to come together nationally so that you have bartenders in Austin and Tallahassee talking to bartenders in Chicago about what they are doing. And, you know, meanwhile, there's then a couple of the things that are interesting to talk about. Um, a, a gentleman named Dave Arnold, who's written a book called Liquid Intelligence, is really by many accounts considered to be the first real crazy bar chemist out there. Dale's book, Liquid Intelligence, is this very deep dive into how things work. You know, is fresh citrus best right when you press it? Three hours later, six hours later, 12 hours later? Uh, side note, I think it's six hours is when they say that they feel like the flavoring has peaked, but they're doing all this stuff with pH meters and trying to do all sorts of crazy, you know, chemical things, which has created a lot of the way out there cocktails that we have seen, especially noted at bars like the Aviary in Chicago. But Dave arguably kind of helped to really kick some of this stuff off. And another person who's really kind of credited in a big way for documenting where we've come from and how far we have come. Um, and there there are several of them, but one of them who's kind of really revered first and foremost is a gentleman named uh, David Wondrich who for many years wrote a column at Esquire magazine, but then in 2007 released a book called Imbibe. And this dug into one of the people who was at least documented as one of the first big bartenders in America, a gentleman named uh, Jerry Thomas, who was kind of all over the place, including he had a brief stint here in the great city of St. Louis. Um, And so these things, these reckonings and deep historical dives are the things that have helped give cocktails uh, a greater connection to where we come from historically with them, about the power of the public house, um, that, you know, cocktails weren't always a thing. And when did they come together and why? So how does all of this lead to where we are in today's movement? Well, what it looks like, and I can only speak for my city, but as an example, in the city of St. Louis is at least the story is told. Um, you know, you have a couple of bars here uh, in St. Louis, uh, and this is a uh, 
plug for an upcoming podcast, one of the first bars that was really taking cocktails seriously in the city of St. Louis was a bar called The Royale. So we'll be talking with Steve Smith here uh, in the coming up days. But then things that really began to push things forward is uh, a gentleman named uh, Ted Kilgore came to St. Louis and opened, uh, started working at a place called Monarch in Maplewood and ultimately was recruited uh, by one of our higher end chefs, Gerard Kraft, to create kind of a really bespoke cocktail bar. And Ted has gone on to do a couple of other projects. But the way things play out here and likely play out in other markets is people start working for Ted and they learn a lot working for someone like him. And suddenly, you know, because it's time to move on or whatever, they go to another bar and they bring good cocktails there for that point in time. And maybe some of their colleagues start learning from them and they start going other places. And this is kind of what I, my understanding of how cocktails really can begin to organically make their way into the scene. You often have a couple of early drivers in a market. You know, Ted talks about despite where cocktails are now, he and I had a conversation a while ago and he said, hey, you know, I mean, we had all these cool drinks on the menu when we opened it. I couldn't get anybody to buy them. And so it's important to remember that this has certainly been an evolution, but you have one or two people they're enthusiastic about it. They have a handful of patrons that love what they're doing. People slowly get trained. They go other places. They begin putting their own spins on things. They do their own research. And eventually you have a market where, while occasionally there are interloper bars that uh, uh, you know have quote-unquote craft cocktails that aren't uh, made all that well, uh, because it's easy right now to to, to spin up a drink, drink menu and call it craft cocktails because they're so sought out. But something I hear often from people is like, man, I come to your class and I learn a lot and then I go out and I realize, oh, wait, I can order an old-fashioned at my corner dive bar, but it's probably not going to come out the way I want. But slowly over time, begin to see a market, the quality of cocktail really elevate in that market. And something else that's been valuable as bartenders have come more into the front, and we've seen this in food service and many industries in general, is the importance of talking about this as a career and not just as something that people suffer through or endure while they're waiting for the next thing. You know, we talk about the mental strain that people have had in the industry, that many people have quit the industry, especially now during the pandemic, because they're like, hey, I was working forever and I was not making enough to do anything. And the more that we can talk about, how do we make sure that uh, we are putting people, not just white men at the forefront, but who are people that are doing interesting things in cocktails that do not fit that description? We also have other important conversations now coming out in terms of what does appropriation look like in the space too. Uh, Tiki, this whole idea of this kind of playful escapism uh, is great in one way and in another is it uh, making a punchline out of certain cultures. You know, when you think about uh, some of the uh, uh, the, the drawn-up pageantry uh, at, at Mexican restaurants, etc., does that lead to people 
uh, stepping on another culture in an insensitive way. So it's fun for us to discover these things and to get curious about them, enjoy them, maybe occasionally enjoy a little too much of them, but also really invites us to say, how do I become a good steward and storyteller of this culture as opposed to someone creating a punchline out of it? Um, you know, for a long time, tequila, which is now just exploding as a spirit, but would have had this like dirty connotation, it's only garbage and Likely some of that would have come not just from the fact that people were drinking rot gut spirit, but because they allowed um, certain cultural connotations to also inform that too. So with all that said, where where are we now? What, what, where are we headed and what, what do I think is, is coming? The thing that I kind of view the most is that we are, and many people are, we're all at different parts of the race. Some people are just having this week or, you know, five years from now, their first ever well-crafted drink. And some people have been on this now for 15 plus years. But we are as a society, and this is on a broader culinary basis, we are retraining our taste buds. Where for a long time, you know, with both culinary and mixology kind of in the tank, where it was like, hey, how cheap can I get this? What's that artificial mixture right there? Does that make it taste better? Cool. As opposed to like the quality of ingredients. But as we retrain our tastes, we are kind of seeing people get more curious about various flavors, wanting to bring them into their home, drink them, etc. And I think that certainly also leads to fringe experimentation. We see bars doing all sorts of crazy things, clarified milk drinks and uh, distilling all sorts of things we've never heard could be distilled before. We see an emerge in uh, low proof and zero proof movements too. Uh, and the early days where we kind of had more of this speakeasy style movement, where a lot of times you, know, you could get a good cocktail, but uh, did the bartender or the establishment were they taking themselves a little too seriously? And now we see many places turning out pretty darn good drinks, but many are as relaxed as they can be. I'm hoping that we're also kind of reaching a moment of kind of beyond beyond bourbon. Bourbon has become the Kleenex of its category, where people kind of use bourbon for a coating around whiskey in general, and to realize that if you like a certain type of thing, that perhaps there are other spirits that are similar to that, or getting curious about unaged spirits. I think it's also fascinating to see tequila, again, boom the way it has. But it's my hope that we're going to have this more diversified palette of flavors people are going to be seeking, playing with, and allowing themselves to step outside their comfort zone with regards to, like, this is what I drink. I also think on the other end of that, as we become hopefully a little more curious, can we make things like tequila and bourbon more accessible to people where, in particular with bourbon, whether it's old fashions, Manhattans, or just sipping it neater on the rocks, how do we hand people the right mixture of a whiskey sour in this way, as just the classic is always easy to lean on? Hey, if the old fashioned isn't for you, try this whiskey sour or try this John Collins with club soda added to it. These are things where 
almost every single time. When I see us change how the drink is presented, when the whiskey is no longer so far out front but is married with and tamed well by these other things, that people suddenly like, oh, I actually do like that. So that is kind of a brief history on how we've come to be here. Uh, from Prohibition and World War II, through the early days with Dale DeGroff and Dick Bradsill, uh, all these notes of things I've mentioned will be in the show notes if you wish to learn more. Uh, Simonson's book, A Proper Drink, is a great read. If you have any questions about it, I'd love to hear from you. Be sure to reach out. So that's all we have for this episode, and I'll see you guys again next time. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you liked the interview, the transcript and show notes are located at decodingcocktails.com slash podcast. The Decoding Cocktails podcast is produced by Chris Bay and myself, Chris LeBeau. Subscribe to avoid missing an episode, and if you think this is good stuff, share it with a friend or review us on your listening platform. And check out our newsletter, Cocktail Confidential. Remember, the best way to get better at mixology is to practice. And the best way to do that is in the company of friends and family. Happy cocktailing, everybody.